Oh. Who is this I don't, I don't see why not. This one's from Wallamo. Which I'm, I think you've met Wallamo. Probably. Maybe. Pretty. Yeah, he came to RF. Yeah, he was at one of our panels. He was on the podcast. Shame on you. <laughs> Which episode was that again? The last RF. Oh. <laughs> Shame. <laughs> Mark that. <laughs> no, that's in. Let, let him know. I'm, that ter- I'm terrible with more. names. and fonts. I'm one of your hosts, Voice. I'm Roland. I'm Ocean. And Yanara has a doctor's appointment. It's another fun day here in the Tigrox lair. And actually, since our last episode where we answered a lot of emails, we have actually gotten two more very in-depth emails that um, we're going to... not the surprising part. The surprising part is we actually checked our emails between episodes. Quote-unquote just gotten from April. Well, one of them. One was recent with more. So, we figured since they are paragraphs upon paragraphs of paragraphs of stuff, we would tackle them and, depending on our time frame, maybe touch on another topic that we've recently been coming across in our slush pile reading. But first, let's get to the emails, which we're going to do chunk by chunk. Do you want to say yeah. who the first ones are from or who they're from? Who is this I don't, I don't see why not. This one's from Wollamo. Okay. Hello, fangs and fonsters. Quite often, while listening to one of your podcasts, it will bring to mind something I should write about to perhaps be discussed in future episodes. In most cases, I'm driving and listening in my car and forget later what I meant to say, if I remember to write at all. So today, I'll knock off a couple that come to mind. A recent episode discussed Slice of Life which I take to mean a story in which there is a relatively little conflict light on plot and where the story simply spends time, spends some time enjoying and getting to know the characters better, exploring the setting, and generally describing some of the more mundane and day-to-day activities. Hopefully, it's not more interesting than the first day on my vacation, I woke up. Then I went downstairs to look for a job. Then I hung out in front of the drugstore. Like any other genre, a slice of life can be done well or poorly. I'm going to step in here. Slice of life's a bit more than that. Um, I can't remember how much we touched on in that episode, but slice of life is more contemporary fiction where it's more the person's life. It's not, there's not huge out-of-control weird things that are going on. It is something that literally is contemporary fiction that is realistic and concentrates more on the people themselves and what they're doing rather than explosions, transforming robots, etc, etc. As the person who wasn't there for that episode, my understanding of Slice of Life is a modern story of modern people. Now, you can still do Slice of Life in other times, and that, but that's generally... A story happening right now, somewhere on Earth. I don't. I don't think that means that anything can be light conflict, light on plot, because you know daily lives are normally boring. But 
they're still incredibly interesting stories. Like, you read them all the time about people struggling through conflicts or relationships and that, and that's actually interesting to many people. I mean, these stories are more true to life. It doesn't mean you get a free pass on, like, you know, no conflict or uh, plot or character development, anything like that, because that would be just a boring story, much like what you've described, going on vacation, going downtown to look for a job, or hanging out in front of the drugstore. Why you'd be doing all of those things at once, I have no idea, because you want to be taking vacation if you didn't have a job, but it's, you don't, I mean, it, it's more or less something that could feasibly happen in real life, or does happen in real life. Um, a lot in the same way that British television is really depressing. Yeah. It's oh it's too real. And so it, that's sort of... Not that all British... Those British sitcoms are like really slice of life, but they have very slice of life elements. Um, it actually reminds me of an episode of American Dad where um, Steve is part of a LARP that takes place at a local park. And... All the people playing it, they're pretending they're moisture farmers on Tatooine. And they flat out state the reason they're doing that is it's like, yeah, I'll let everyone have, you know, the rebellion and the empire and all that go on. We want to tell the story of the moisture farmers of Tatooine because that's where all the real action and all the interesting things are. And they're going about doing, you know, running a bar or running. It's sort of like people that get a hard-on for the Senate as opposed to, like, the actual space wars of Star Wars. Yeah. And, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that because, as Roland said, there is definitely conflicts that can take place. I mean, even a contemporary story about a man whose wife is cheating on him and how he's dealing with that entire thing. I mean... That's Um, interesting. That can be a very engaging book, and that's not a light plot. Not to mention you see that kind of plot all the time in furry stories, a lot of the short stories that happen. It's something that's really easy to encapsulate in a in a short story for an anthology or something like that. Mm-hmm. You should probably read the next paragraph, too. Counterpoint yeah. to this is the notion that everything in the story should be in some way relevant to the plot and the ultimate conclusion of the story. If we are told a pebble rolls down a hill, there must be some reason it's important. You will sometimes hear writing advice to trim out everything that isn't necessary. Focus on what's important and keep the story moving forward at all times. I would like to propose that something in between these two is a viable alternative, or at least it could be depending on the genre. In an action thriller, you'll probably want to stick pretty close to the latter, but in other genres, you can get away with a combination of the two. You don't have to choose the fastest and most direct route to the conclusion. It's okay to stop and smell the roses along the way, to take in the scenery. Explore a few interesting, if possible, possibly not otherwise relevant aspects of the setting you've created. Add a scene that's a little side story about one of the characters. I'm not suggesting you should spend chapters and chapters on these things. A story still needs to move forward at a fairly decent pace, lest it ramble on and on, and your readers get bored. Rather, I'd suggest not worrying too much about whether every scene moves the plot forward or develops a character in some important respect. You can choose to keep a story tight and moving forward, or you can give yourself permission to include the slice of life or some slice of life in the mix. So one of the things about slice of life that I think people enjoy the most 
is that it's extremely relatable. Um, because usually, again, they're just ordinary people on an ordinary day. And they're facing anything that any of us could face at the same time. Uh, it's very easy to become immersed in that. It's very easy to become attached to that because there's very low suspension of disbelief. These are usually stories happening to people, again, in modern day, in modern situations. Failing marriages or taking on a new business or, you know, uh, death of a loved one, something. like These seem like very small, insignificant events. But by actually, we get to explore them on a deeper level um, because, again, we're, we're able to relate to them much closer because all of these events theoretically almost could happen to all of us. There are some situations where they can't, obviously, like depending on race or gender or other things like that or location or like growing up. But it also gives us another window into reading uh, more about that. So I don't really find the conflicts boring or small or light on plot. I can understand if people feel that way because it's either a story where either you're not interested in slice of life because you want to be wild and taken to a brand new world versus the one you're already living in, or these are just not conflicts that you're interested in or want to deal with. But to the people that do enjoy it, I think it's because they're, they, they find them very relatable and they get very wrapped into it, you know? It's 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 almost like reading what ifs about your life sometimes. Perfect example of an extremely popular slice of life, or at least what I would consider slice of life, is Stand by Me. It's basically it's a Stephen King story. It's non-horror, and it's about four boys who take a trek across the countryside to go see a dead body, and all their adventures traveling through you know a lake with leeches, and I believe. I can't remember if they're bullies or hobos or something that want to rob them or something. It's been a long time since I've seen it. But generally, the entire story is four boys going on an adventure in the middle of the summer to go see a dead body. And yet, it's a lot of people consider it a classic. A lot of people remember it from their childhood. Oh, that's the Stephen King one? Yeah. Okay. So I know of it. I've just never actually seen it. But because it's just... One of Stephen King's best, apparently, so you, it's repeated everywhere. Yeah, and it's just, and I mean, there's there's aspects of his boyhood in it, but people mm -hmm. like watching it because, especially the older generation, it encapsulates a lot of what growing up was for them, and Slice of Life does that a lot. Um, going on to the thing about having side moments of Slice of Life for your characters, um, sometimes that works, sometimes that doesn't. Um, I find anime does it relatively well, where there'll be a break in the point where... That's called filler, Tarl. Yeah. Filler episode. <laughs> and, no one likes filler. Well, you got to watch how you do it in books. Um, Robert Jordan... I, I, I'd call it a side plot, or, a, or a, like, like a, a, side, a yeah, subplot. Yeah. That's basically well, what it is. Robert Jordan, in his Wheel of Time series, wrote so many side points that eventually you had books that were devoted to side characters that didn't have the main protagonist in them at all which I find kind of redonkulous especially the fact that the books are in themselves thousands of pages long and you don't have the main character show up at all as you desperately try to tie up loose ends or create more just by showing what everyone's doing while this whole thing is happening it it you, that's how you kind of, I would say, fail at it. Um, same thing goes for, say, Tolkien. Tolkien is a very wordy writer. One of the reasons why he's so wordy is because he does add a lot of that flavor text to a story. I, myself, like adding flavor text. 
but for me, it's a case of a brief mention, let the uh, reader's imagination grab that and take off. I don't need to sit there and explain it, just move on. Which I know frustrates some readers that I know, but others love it. I myself am one of those people where slowly I like piecing together various stories and how they tie together. Doing the whole kind of flowery prose and everything like that is one not for everyone. It, it largely depends on the kind of writing style that you're looking to go for. And slice of life doesn't necessarily mean what you've described here for everyone. What do you feel about the um, when it comes to details? Everything must have a purpose versus putting in flavor that, text. That's always been a hard question to answer because, one, it's still different for everyone. I tend to get fairly frustrated by it mostly i think because it's not often done well and it often if it detracts from what the purpose of the story is it kind of cheapens the experience in my own personal opinion not to say that you can't do it because there are many authors that do and to say that it's improper would be doing a disservice to people that do write that way can't remember if Sparf mentions this in his podcast, but I know he was telling me that, and generally there is the rule of thumb that, you know, everything is in your story for a reason. And so those three reasons are usually progress the plot, progress the character, build atmosphere. If it's not one of those things, then why is it in your story kind of question? And it's, it's good to ask yourself, you know, what is this actually doing in your story? But it also comes down a bit to style as well, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not one for big flowery prose. I'm here, I would probably not like Patrick Rothfuss because I hear it's very flowery. Um, I like to just, you know, can we just get on and move? I want to read the rest of the story. But there are other people that are just floored. They love to be, they love to have all that imagery and detail in there. And so it's, it's I think, just deciding your own writing style on your author or um, readership. Well, it's very much kind of like the science fiction versus hard science fiction, where science fiction you can get away with just going. It's a warp drive where hard science fiction readers we very much the particle off. Yeah, <laughs> they want to know exactly how the hell this mm. thing works, and will sit there and eat up paragraph after paragraph after paragraph of hardcore technical data, while most of us would be like, okay, just stop. Yeah, and like it's a lot of that. Like you know, if you're writing for an editor or publisher, something like that, you have to take into account for your audience, but. I do feel like there's a point where to where editors in the fandom get a little too militant about uh, how relevant some details are to your story. Like, I definitely think there's a place for flowery prose. There was a time when I enjoyed it a lot more than I do currently. And I feel like I might be coming around to that again. But, yeah, it's, it's hard to say because it is so easy to overload your reader with too many details that I would rather err on the side of less than more because at least then I'm not in danger of boring my reader. So to continue the email, new topic, Song of the Summer King. I just listened to that episode a couple weeks ago, having postponed it until I read the book. Something I liked about the book was that the Acer, you guys can correct me because my... Did, weren't, I'm sure none of us are correct, just... And the veneer are portrayed strictly as one good and the other evil. One is supposed to be more good and the other's more evil, but it's not that simple. Which one's good and which one's evil? 
Um, it depends on the point well, of view. I, think I, mean, the point. I would say technically the Acer are supposed to be evil, but I mean... I would think the king was evil, good. and he dictated on, what he on. thought was good hold and on. evil, yeah, while everybody else hold was on, cool. Hold on, good relationships can form across the lines between the two, and at least two characters who are Acer, the more evil group, are portrayed as being mostly good. Isn't everybody Acer except for two to three people? Every, yeah. <laughs> I think that's the case because I think the entire because they killed off all the males, didn't they? And then, oh yeah, okay. So there's a bunch of females, but anyways. And yeah, that's one of the things that makes it good is they're not strictly good or evil. It's just how you view it and their traditions. Because I think that's the whole thing is those. That I think there are characters with evil motives. I don't think the people themselves are evil. No, I mean I think that's the one statement about the best evil quote quote villains are the ones that believe they are actually doing good Continue. one thing that bugged me in the story that I don't think you ever brought up is that left in nature it is implausible that a system of caves that connect the isles islands and run below the water level would remain dry unless there was magic or some engineering involved in keeping them that way if someone with more advanced knowledge of geology says otherwise I shall defer to them but to my understanding, there would almost certainly be enough cracks or fissures in the strata for water from the sea to leak into the caves and ultimately flood them. I mean, sure. <laughs> if you want to take the fun out of it. I believe it was, I believe it was slightly... Um, well, actually, that, that was an issue, a plot um, hole that I believe... Did we point that out? We, I think we did. Because that was my big issue. And I believe I've heard it's being corrected in the second version or something like that. Um, but yeah, there was the whole, you better leave before before the tide comes in. And then later they're like, oh, we'll just take the tunnels all the time. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, but, like, but what about that? You couldn't get to the. Oh no, no, that was that was that tunnel. Uh, yeah, These that, ones over here are all good. That that was the sacred moon. We can't. We don't yeah, use the tunnels yeah. that day. Like, um, <laughs> you don't use the tunnel like, on Tunnel Eve. <laughs> here's here's the thing about like you know implausible geological formations such as those. Just just let the story so, have so it. So I'm also going to point out that there is a mythological beast that does not exist in the world today in the story. Yeah, but I mean, like, yeah, and... <laughs> and sort later of, there are others, too, in the sort other of, Sort of to that, like, in the sense that we say, like, you don't have to explain what a furry is. You don't have to explain why there are griffins. You don't have to explain how there's, like, inexplicably, inexplicably magic in an otherwise, like, not really how magical world. How do these animals world. get on the island? It's so far away from so, everything. <laughs> I mean, you don't have to explain something like the, the tunnels that run beneath the islands. You don't have to come up with a logical explanation as to why the tunnels are there. They just they just are, and it is possible, so there's no reason to draw it into question. It's <laughs> because, a plot I mean, device. That said, we technically do have caves that exist when the tide is out. Like, in the same way that the plot inexplicably goes in favor of the good guy when, like, the climax of a story is approaching. Or... Like, as long as you can make it, like, even remotely plausible. Or the fact that eating fish makes his wa feathers water repellent, despite the fact that that doesn't really happen for animals, as far as I know. Yeah, I... Yeah, magic? <laughs> Continuing on. As I was about to send this, I decided to see if you had posted any new episodes of FNF. A feral scene. First off, are you aware that the proper definition of 
feral is a member of a domestic species living in the wild. The widespread usage in the furry fandom to mean a character whose physical form matches that of a real animal is incorrect in my opinion. It also came into common usage in the furry fandom, I'm guessing about 10 years ago, and as far as I can tell, that meaning of the term feral is seldom used outside the fandom. So I'm going to kind of use your own wording here and kind of point out that the anthropomorphic on two legs is kind of a domestic species and the fact that they're usually in a civilized way in the way that we portray them in anthropomorphics and so when people usually have them on four legs that is almost a feral version of them this is a little like because they'd be living in the wild arguing against merriam-webster when they changed the definition of literally to mean figuratively you're at the mercy of the furry fandom and how they choose to use that word. Well, it's like if. If becoming a term for sex. Yeah. It's or, only used in the fandom. Or pawing mm-hmm. off. Or furry not meaning, you know, furry. me or you. Yeah. It, sorry. The, or, or, the fandom has spoken. When, when we just say anthropomorphics instead of anthropomorphic animals and not anthropomorphic pot of noodles because everyone knows we're talking about anthropomorphics in the animal sense. It's one of those things where the fandom as a fandom has taken these terms and created an alternative slang term for it. Yeah, regardless of what the original context meant, because P-H-A-T was not even a word, and now it's, you know what I'm talking about when I use a phrase such as that. Yep. No, you go ahead. Generally, the connotation is to go with savage and being fierce, but it's our word now. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, in, in the context of the furry fandom, it means... A character that is on four legs, typically, and then outside of the fandom, it means domesticated wild, or typically domesticated wild animal. Right. All right. Also note that Oh Heavenly Dog was directed by Joe Camp, the owner and trainer of Benji, who also directed the other Benji films. Like other famous screen dogs, such as Lassie, Benji has been replaced over time. Yep, because dogs only live so long. Still doesn't beat the littlest hobo. No. Yeah. That dog lived forever. Did he ever find a home? I don't know. <laughs> I just remember that dog getting into the craziest of adventures. <laughs> Forget he carried a gun at one point, and I was like, what the hell? Anyway, hopefully that gives you enough to chew on. Yes. Period. Thank Period. you for the email. Thank you for the yes, email. Yes, thank you. That actually did give us a lot to chew on. This next one from Sparf reads, Hey guys, you don't have to go into any details on air about this if you don't want, or you can summarize. Just a quick note regarding your most recent episode when you talked about the general hopelessness of getting furry fiction published in the mainstream market. I have to say that should be upgraded from hopeless to unlikely. Uh, Lawrence Schoen's novel Barsk, The Elephant's Graveyard, is a furry novel from beginning to end. I'll add a spoiler section below in case you'd like to skip that part, even though it's relevant to my point. Um... But it was published by Tor, so that's about as mainstream as it gets for genre fiction. <sighs> Again, this goes to the whole definition of furry fiction as a mainstream market. It goes back to the quote-to-quote furry fiction and what one means by that and then into a mainstream market. Well, and what do you get when you have a furry publisher going to something like San Diego Comic-Con? Which they've been doing for quite a while. Yes. And then going to Worldcon and FP. So like several Worldcon. publishers already do that. Is yeah. that not mainstream? Well, that, that or was is the... it not mainstream because it's not Well, big I enough? think that's what it comes down to is does mainstream technically mean the big five or four, whatever they are now, or does it mean 
getting it out there. I think it means read by people that are not within that niche. Um, but yeah, like, I suppose like, so. But like, doesn't that? Then that doesn't mean you are. Everyone is reading it. Like generally, like, mainstream. Mainstream usually means you've penetrated almost all the markets, right? The the biggest example I can think about is the Wii. The Wii is one of the only gaming consoles to penetrate the mainstream market. People who were not gamers were buying it. Grandmas and grandpas were playing it. Like, moms at home were like, oh, I can check my weight with the scale. Sure, but mm. you wouldn't call something like a PS4 niche. Yes. Yes, I would. Only people who are interested in gaming are most likely buying a PS4. I'm unfortunately going to have to agree with that. The only time, the, like, the PS3, you could start marketing. The PS2 was, I think, one of the few others that maybe pushed into mainstream because it was one of the highest selling systems. And then PS3, I would say, got close to mainstream by the fact that when it first came out, it was one of the cheapest Blu-ray players around so much that I was selling it versus normal Blu-ray players because it was like, it's a Blu-ray player that can play games. And they're like... And it costs as much as your Blu-ray player. It costs less than the Blu-ray player. Oh, well then. So, um, I, I wouldn't say... It, <laughs> so, it was really... The reason it was getting sold to the mainstream was because it was a the, one of the cheaper alternatives to buying the newest technology. Right, and I remember that. Like, and it was better than the Blu-ray players yeah. you could buy, which was nuts. But getting back to yeah, the going point to, of to becoming, becoming mainstream, <laughs> what, if, what does that mean exactly? Like... If we're talking about it in the sense of like the Wii penetrating the entire market, you would have to be as popular as J.K. Rowling. Yeah, yeah. To be main, quote Pretty unquote, much. mainstream. You would so, have to be one of like the top bestsellers or something, right? I, on, the, on the on the book list to be like full mainstream. But I think at the same time, we do mean back to saying like some. It's it's appealing to readers outside the niche market. When when Fur Planet, I think, was at Worldcon. They said they. I believe they were saying that the most attention they were getting were people were like, "Holy crap, you've got stuff from Fred Patton," and they're like, uh, "Yeah, yeah," because people know Fred Patton. They don't necessarily know the furry genre, but they were like, "Oh, Fred Patton," because they were um, otaku's or whatever. But then the question is, is what does it take for furry to get to? Like, I, th- I think the main goal here is to break out of the furry fandom. But I mean, when you say like, how do we become mainstream? We're already mainstream, at least in the way that people talk about us. Yeah. They may not know anything about, like, the inner workings of the fandom or what we produce, but they know what furries are. They know where they go, and they know what we look like. They don't know what we produce, and, I mean, a lot of the time, we create this safe little bubble for ourselves that we like to stay in. Mm-hmm. When it comes to becoming "quote unquote" mainstream or breaking out of the fandom, and I but. think that's because we're introverts, and that's actually brought up here. So let's let's continue on here. Um, I feel we've got to break out somewhere, or we're going to die on the vine. Too many times I hear that we, especially short story writers, are part of an incest of the incestuous circle. Of anthologies and that we aren't buying them and, and if, that if we weren't buying them they wouldn't exist we've got to grow our market somehow or this may be what happens I don't know what the solution is but one thing I've toyed with is some of the is some form of unified marketing strategy between starting this email and sending it it came up in discussion in the FWG slack chat as well our publishers do nothing beyond release really it's not their fault and it's not a character flaw on their part really it's a matter of there being one to four people, or one in four people, who are employed, in quotations, 
by each publisher, depending on whether it's one of the big three or one of the new blood like Armored Fox or Thurston Howell, there simply isn't time for comprehensive marketing from beginning to end. Not to mention that marketing can cost money and that's something that's also in short supply. The parallel I see drawn often between ourselves as far as like a incestuous writer circle goes is science fiction, but the fandom is also relatively new. And so we're still a lot of the time, like we, we have to try hard enough just to raise the bar for the quality of work that we produce and sell on a regular basis that and I don't really feel like a lot of us have time to work on marketing, which is a little hypocritical. Like there are people that have certainly done otherwise. You do have people like Mary Loud, um, Kyle Gold, um, and a few other people that are big on self-promotion and it's paid off for them. That's a hard thing to do. It's not for everyone. It's mm -hmm. why things like the big four exist as like the actual publish quote unquote <laughs> actual publishing world go. They have the marketers, the editors, the like the big wig people that market your stuff for you, sell it for you, and then tell you what people want. We don't have that kind of infrastructure. We barely have businesses big enough to start having that kind of infrastructure. And I don't think we will for another while. As far as the writers are the only ones buying the books or the majority of the ones buying books, I think that goes kind of part and part with the fact that a lot of writers are readers, at least we hope. We keep pushing that. So when we go to a Fur Planet table or Sofa Wolf table or Rabbit Valley table, we're the ones that are walking away with a stack of six books. Whereas in the average person, average furry, who's like, I want to read a book, they end up going to, I would say, people like Kyle Gold or Mary Loud, who do do that marketing. Um, and part, and again, they do a good job of it, so they're well known. Whereas in, I think a lot of the submitters, especially short story people, are trying to rely on um, the marketing that the small pubs do and it's not just furries and their small pubs having issues marketing this is a problem that most small publishers have and I mean I follow quite a few of them um, just because I'm kind of interested in what they do and I've seen maybe one that has sat there and put an insane amount of effort into getting their books recognized and they succeeded. Somehow they got their unpublished book to be number one or one of the top 10 horror books in 2016. And I'm just like, how the hell did this happen? Seeing as this book hasn't even been released yet. But they also promoted the hell out of it. And they actually put a fair amount of coin into it. But like also consider the amount of time it takes to grow a business in a small community like the furry fandom. Rabbit Valley, for example, I believe took nearly a decade to become profitable. These people are still people with full-time jobs. They don't have time for that kind of a marketing strategy, and we're just not that big. As far as selling books to other people, I think that's why anthologies are so popular, because, like, to publish and to buy, because they are short, bite-sized things that allow you to experience a like a party platter of art uh, of authors that you might enjoy reading it's a very 
easy way to di to digest a lot of your reading. So short stories and anthologies, yeah, they're they're popular because they're easy for people to pick up. I think a, a main issue is that we like anthropomorphic stories because we like anthropomorphics in our stories. Um, but the reason that that's not mainstream is that people who would want to read anthropomorphic stories would be reading anthropomorphic stories. So you need stories that feature anthropomorphs that are appealing to more than more interest that people have than just that feature in a story, right? Like, like Redwall and yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a fantasy. Like Kyle, Kyle usually like he's pushing like usually gay, gay either slice of life stories or their form of, of gay fiction in his stories that also happen to have anthropomorphs. Um, just his story are really you know about like a fantasy about a society of griffins on other islands like there's fantasy a little bit of magic and stuff in there as well well i mean even just look at the latest news article about kyle gold's islamic book it's getting a lot of press because his main i think his protagonist is islamic but at the same point it's also gay and furry which people are i think that's what's creating the main stir is here to look at this strange, really odd thing. And, I mean, people are going to end up reading it, people who aren't fans of anthropomorphs, but is that doing a service to the fandom, or is that doing a disservice to the fandom? I, I remember being asked about my opinion on that particular subject the other day, and ultimately the answer is it's if he's done it correctly, then sure. Maybe it's doing a service, maybe it's getting people that wouldn't normally pick up a book like this to pick up a book like that. Because they're like, wait, what do you mean this guy's a gay Islamic character that... Cheetah. Cheetah, that <clears throat> is gay and Islamic. And yeah, maybe they'll read that, and maybe they'll go, oh, maybe I want to read more of this stuff. Well, and, but, there's, and there's case in points of people who haven't been into the fandom basically coming into the fandom because they meet some furries and they start reading some of the fiction and they start going, oh, I actually really like this. This is something that connects with me. But I think Ocean's nailed it on the head there where the case and the point is is for us to breach outside of the fandom, as it were, is your story has to be appealing to people outside the fandom. And, you know, I think... In some ways, that means we need to have, as you said, stronger writers, because a lot of people like relying on the tropes within furry fandom writing, and quite frankly, most of those won't fly outside of our small circle. I, I personally think that we're still trying to break out of that mold, because it's up until recently, it's been a lot of self-flagellation, and like people just looking to get their rocks off in you know, fewer words, but... Um, well, I think we've grown significantly since we started this podcast. I certainly. Think the fandom has... The quality is improving. I mean, I just have to look at certain anthologies like Inhuman Acts to sit there and look at the quality of writing and go, holy crap, you know... That one's pretty good. <laughs> well, some, there's some amazing... Did it win an award or something? Yeah, shut up. So did mine. <laughs> I know. Um... I haven't mentioned yours. Well, like we, yeah, and <laughs> that's the thing. Like everything is, everything is getting better. Like we see it getting better before our very eyes, but it still has so much more to go. 
and enough that it creates a precedence of like equality and professionalism and to grow and build the foundation for these businesses mm-hmm. that I still feel needs work. And I think this also has to take on um, part of it, I think furry writers also have to take on a certain level of professionalism because while there are certain people who do take their writing fairly seriously for every one that I see that takes it seriously um, I see 10 where it's I look at them and I'm just like if any of your comments got out like if you got famous and your people went to your backlogs you're toast yeah and well, it's just they, they treat it like a joke. They treat it like that newbie fur that comes into the fandom and just spews random crap all over the place. And it's like, I'm supposed to take your writing seriously. People are supposed to look at what you do and take writing itself as seriously. But that's just my opinion and what I see. If you want to see how far professionalism needs to come within the fandom, just volunteer to do an anthology, volunteer at a table volunteer and try to get some insight onto the the backdoor dealings of like a convention or a publisher or an anthology you will see in droves just how professional the furry fandom can be it's not always good and like it, it, it might seem like i'm ragging on the furry fandom a lot but it's only because we're a young fandom and that i still i see so much potential and otherwise i wouldn't care and as Roland said, it's not just the furry fandom. I'm a member of a cyberpunk writer group on Facebook, and I see the same stuff with the, with people on it behaving just like people do on furry fandom websites for writers. And it's just you have the few that just don't understand that, you know, what you say affects your writer's platform. You know what? They'll probably go, they'll probably publish a few stories, and then they'll sink and they'll disappear. It's certainly not limited to your writer's platform either. If you consider, like, small, well, it's kind of a double-edged sword because small communities where it gets around fast. We're a small community. If you burn your bridges with with a publisher, with an author that likely knows every furry publisher head that exists within the fandom you've burnt your bridges and if you act like a dingus when in a much larger community to a point where you've tarnished your reputation well you've also screwed yourself to use an example of that on the cyberpunk writing group one of the members was putting together an anthology and he sent out his rejection and acceptance letters and one of the people who got a rejection letter sent him an email back saying, are you fucking kidding me? If that happened in the furry fandom, I can guarantee that the publishers, all of them, would know in short order who this person was and this was their response to a rejection letter and it would hamstring your writing career very quickly. Well, and consider saying that to anyone. You, you send into a publisher, you get a rejection letter, and your response is, are you fucking kidding me? You will never do business with them again. You'd be blacklisted by, like, Tor. And if you're blacklisted by a publication like Tor, you're probably blacklisted from everything else, too. Because that does not leave a good impression, and that is not the kind of impression you want to leave on anyone. Because you never know who knows someone you don't. 
Um, to continue the email, <laughs> yeah. you guys and other podcasters can, of course, help your own stuff out by mentioning it on the podcast or others' works, but almost never is it comprehensive or ongoing. Kyle Gold's genius lay in marketing... Uh, lay in marketing as such as, as much as telling these sorts of stories that people wanted to read in the fandom, regardless of personal opinions of its quality. Uh, and once you reach a certain point, it becomes self-sustaining. He got a well-followed. He's got a well-followed Twitter feed, a newsletter, and a fan base that can evangelize. Most of us have none of that. When Voice talks about building an author platform, I get simultaneously determined and crushed <laughs> by the cyclopean size of the task. Uh, and while I'm happy to evangelize my own work where it exists on my own podcast, and you guys can and should on yours, I don't think that's enough. A rising tide lifts all boats. The trouble I see is what we often are on is that we are often on to the next project, the next thing, and building hype for that. Once we push an anthology across the finish line, we let it drop. A lot of writers are introverts. Most of us aren't marketing people and have no experience in it. But I can't help but wonder if a unified organization dedicated solely to marketing might not be worth looking into creating. I don't know if the Furry Writers Guild would be the right organization for it, but I've talked recently about seeing if we can make that a focus of the guild more so than it is now. If everyone were to pitch in, or at least several of us, the task would become less daunting. I don't think the Writers Guild does anywhere near enough to do outreach to people who don't know that furry writing exists. Or or those who think that it's all crappy, self-published, and unedited fat material posted to FA. But that's not the guild's fault. It's the fault of us, the membership. There is no monolithic guild with a staff and a comprehensive strategy and money. And while money is in short supply, maybe we can all pull together toward the goal of increased outreach both inside and outside the fandom. Happy holiday to you guys, Sparf. So we've talked about this as well, that the Furry Writers Guild does not promote itself effectively. I stand by that, and I completely agree with Sparf, and that this is a pervasive problem throughout the fandom. This is one of the reasons why I push writing platforms so much. Um, There's a wonderful book that I read that kind of taught me how important it is, and it's called Create Your Writer's Platform, The Key to Building an Audience, Selling More Books, and Finding Success as an Author by Chuck Sambuccino. Um, You can find it on my Goodreads page under books I've read under writing. Um, It's mostly for nonfiction, but a lot of what he talks about in there replies to fiction in a small setting such as ours and explains why having a writing platform is such an important thing. Um, as Sparf explains, Kyle Gold has a writing platform. He has a social media to back it up. This is one of the reasons why his stuff gets so popular. And, as Sparf also mentioned, he writes stories that furry readers want to read. And that's one of the reasons why he has found the success that he has found. Um, as it comes to the Free Writers Guild and having a kind of body to promote works, um, I think, yeah, I agree it does come down to money. I think it comes down to time. I think a lot of people want don't want to put the time into something that won't see them personal gain. It's unfortunate, but 
there's people out there who are willing to do this and willing to put the footwork and legwork into it, then that would be awesome. Again, I don't feel like market like marketing, as Barf does mention here, is not everyone's forte. And it might even not especially be a writer's forte. As important as it is. I found it's much easier to do if you're a full-time writer. Those are the ones who are doing the marketing. Both because they have more time for it and both because if they don't do it, that's their bread and butter. They're screwed. They need to. Yeah, a large part of this, and this comes up in just about every discussion about living and off your writing and marketing, is that we all have full-time jobs. Writing, when I actually do it, is the bulk of my free time. I don't have time for anything else. So it's it's not always a matter of glossing over your previous achievements and moving on to the next one. It's about having time for them at all, which well, can be difficult. I mean, I'm sitting here at the standpoint where it's been probably close to a year since I've legitimately written anything for publication. And now I'm just finished Bleak Horizons and I've turned around and picked up Perfect Tales for Armored Fox and I'm and now looking at it going okay well for Armored Fox I have to do a certain amount of promotion I have to do a certain amount of social media work and things like that which is daunting plus I have to do my slush pile which is daunting my editing which is daunting and I've got to write as well to keep my own writing career afloat and I understand why some of the smaller presses I know dropped their entire small press just so they could go back to writing but it's just a case of for publishers especially in the fandom who don't have the funds they're doing their full-time job to come home and they might have to box up and ship out their books and whatnot and things like that i mean they can't really run it like most businesses um on a very weird note recently due to the mannequin challenge there was a uh, bad dragon did a mannequin challenge and you want to see how a company grows. I remember when Bad Dragon was this tiny little ass company. And now they've got friggin' a staff of I don't even know how many. There was at least a, two dozen people in that video. And they've got different departments. Like, that's crazy. And I mean, I would love to see the furry fandom writing group get that much. But that does require more advertising, unfortunately. Um, that requires more money, unfortunately, and that requires, you know, a lot more work from the point of publishers and the authors. Because unfortunately, in this case, the authors are going to have to help the publishers, and the publishers are going to have to help the authors. And they have to be both be willing to do that for it to get anywhere. I, I think the other thing about writers and all that marketing more is that keep in mind when this became possible five years ago with Indiegogo uh, Patreon being the most recent one um, GoFundMe like these kinds of crowdsourcing crowdfunding campaigns that allow people to donate trivial sums of money on a regular basis that make up a livable wage this was not a thing a couple years ago and so without being accepted to one of the big publishers or like making your own business and then working day and night at your day job and then your your moonlight moonlighting job there is nothing 
And so I think I think this is still a very new revolution that people are getting used to because you're seeing Patreon pages pop up everywhere. It's it's taking time for people to get the momentum, for people to realize that this is a viable solution, and to get the fan base. So even with because like you can look at I think it's uh, Kyle's Patreon was split between himself and Blotch which I think worked out to be something like one to two grand a month for each of them. Yeah. Last I checked. That's not a trivial sum of money. It's not a lot of money. Could not live off a, a mere grand a month or even mm-hmm. two at this point. But like, it's, still... it's a difficult road to walk without some kind of financial support and stability like these people tend to have. Well, there was a lovely article that... Um a stay-at-home dad slash full-time author and it was basically a breakdown of his day in it he maybe spent four hours writing everything else was promote 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 it takes a lot of work and you gotta think that he's doing that you know answering emails doing tweets you know working on his social media pages and i mean it's daunting and a lot of people just don't want to put that kind of work into it, and that's unfortunate. But especially as writers, especially in the fandom, as I said earlier, you know, we've got to be willing to help the publishers promote works. I mean, it's in our benefit. By the same point, they've got to help us, too. So, anyway, thank you, Spar, for the email. Is there anything else to say on these? Well, it's... I want to see the furry fandom go outside... I think it would be neat to see more. I mean, we are definitely way more mainstream than we were, you oh, know, like, even a year ago. I, I absolutely want to see the fandom grow and thrive, but these things do take time. And, you know, in 30 years, we're probably going to look back and go, wow, this fandom is so much different, diverse, larger than we ever, you know, thought it would be or got to experience yeah and hopefully by 60 i'll still be writing furry smut for the masses good old old timer fur sex i mean that'll probably be my market at that point (laughs) (laughs) there'll be a lot of us that are 60 at that point thank you for listening ladies and gentlemen if you have any questions comments or concerns you can email us at really long emails to send us fangs and fonts at gmail.com Facebook.com slash Fangs and Fonts. And you can also find everything on our website, fangsandfonts.com, I think. And Twitter. I think you can find everything on there. Our Twitter is at Fangs and Fonts. And you can personally harass each of us on Twitter. Yes. All right. And I believe that is everything from us tonight. So have a good night. This has been your host, Fangs and Fonts. Thank you for listening. Send us more really long-winded emails. That was actually a lot of fun. That, That was great. I enjoyed that. So much email. Have a good night, everyone. Bye. Bye. Thought we already said bye. For example, many zombies may crave something much worse than human flesh. Poutine.
Putin. 